the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in two verses in the portion of Scripture that we read at the beginning, namely the 37th and the 40th verses in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And they are the words, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And also, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, perhaps I'd better remind you of the whole setting. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now we are still at the beginning of a new year. I wonder how many of you still remember that and still think of that. I was indicating here a fortnight tonight, the first Sunday night of the new year, that nothing is so characteristic of us all by nature as the way in which we just remember this whole matter of time and of our life in this world periodically. New Year or something like that, but we soon forget it. And we lapse back into the old position and into the old ways. And I think you'll all agree that that is something which is true of most of us, if not indeed of all of us. And so it is necessary that we should constantly be reminded of this. Now, we've been trying to do that during these Sunday evenings of this new year. We looked the first Sunday night at the whole brevity of life. The time passed of our life. And the little time that remains. The rest of our life. We saw that we are living in a world in which that is true. That our lease on life is not endless. It's a very limited thing. Very well, that led on last Sunday, to the next uh, quite inevitable point. What is uh, indeed the whole future course of history? What is uh, going to happen to the whole world and its peoples? And there we were confronted by this great New Testament teaching and doctrine concerning the second coming of Christ, as it's called. The fact that he will come back into this world uh, to judge it in righteousness and that we should all take heed, lest that great event should take us unawares and come suddenly upon us, and we, being unprepared for it, should go to disaster and to final calamity. Well, now, I'm continuing that same theme this evening, and I want to put it to you like this. In our world as it is this evening, this world of the bond, this world of the dread possibility of some mighty cataclysm taking place at any moment. I remind you again how it is the scientists who are telling us that 
By about 1968, some 12 nations will have these bombs, and thereby the risk of any one of them mishandling them or misusing them is correspondingly increased. Well, there is our world, there's our setting. The whole situation has become so uncertain. And that's not merely the Bible saying it any longer, but it is indeed secular men, men who don't claim to be Christians, but who are speaking from a strictly scientific standpoint and who remind us that the end may come upon us almost at any moment. Now, the question I'm asking is this. What then is our first duty in the light of this? What is the first thing that we should do face to face with such uh, terrible possibilities? And uh, my argument is this that the first thing that we should say by way of reaction to these circumstances is the very thing that was said by these people who were listening to the preaching of the Apostle Peter at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, I'm saying that this is the logical step. With the world as it is, with all these uncertainties and possibilities, isn't that obviously the first thing that we should ask, the first thing we should say. What then are we to do in the light of this situation? Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do as it were to save ourselves out of this condition in which we find ourselves? Well now, I want to consider with you this morning, this evening, a reaction which is very common at the present time to that very statement. And it is this. There are many who would say that to react in that way and to be concerned about our souls and their salvation, about our own deliverance, is just to be unutterably selfish. Fancy, they say, with the world as it is this evening and with the nations going along the lines along which they are traveling, fancy with the whole world in this predicament that you should exhort people to be concerned about themselves and their own personal salvation. They say, if that's your Christianity, we've no use for it at all. Surely, they say, the business of Christianity is to be concerned about the whole world. What are we that we should look at ourselves and say, how can I be saved and my soul be saved when the whole world is, as it were, in this condition? Isn't it your business, they say, as Christians, not only to be concerned about this larger issue, but to be doing everything you can to deal with it. They say it is really despicable that anybody at a time such as this should put up as his first question, what about my soul? How can I make sure that I am all right myself? Now, that, I think you will agree, is a very common attitude that is taken by large numbers of people at this present time. And obviously, it's a very vital matter. Now, let's approach it like this. Have you personally ever asked this question? What shall I do? Have you ever so realized your position in this life and in this world that you've become concerned about your present position and about your future position? Has anything ever happened to you that has brought you to the point and to the place which these people came to and made them interrupt the sermon, as it were, and cry out, saying, What shall we do then? In the light of what you're saying, what shall we do? They became tremendously concerned about themselves and about their own personal position. 
I'm simply asking, have you ever asked the question? If not, why not? Is it, I wonder, because you hold that view, that there is something very small and selfish about this, that it is wrong for us to have this concern about our own personal salvation with the world in its present state and predicament. Well, now then, I want to try to show you that that attitude is not only wrong, but that it is the most dangerous attitude in which one can ever find oneself. Now, let me approach it like this. First and foremost, let me make this perfectly clear. The evangelical preaching of this gospel does not tell people to be only concerned about their souls and their personal salvation. But what it does do is to tell them to be first of all concerned about this. There is nothing that I find in the scripture which tells a man to be only concerned about himself and to pull down the blinds, as it were, and to ignore the great world which is round and about him. That's not Christianity. That is not evangelical Christianity. But what is evangelical Christianity is, as I say, that you must start with this. And that if you are concerned about the generalities without having first of all made certain about yourself, that you're not only wrong, but that you're a fool, and that you are jeopardizing your most vital interests. Not only this, but definitely this first. And after this, the various other matters. It's the same kind of order as our Lord indicates himself, you remember in the famous words, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. You don't start with them, you seek with the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then these other things. And so it is with Christianity. Christianity is not first a general interest and only a general interest. It is first a personal interest. And that in turn leads on to the more general interests. And of course this is what has been true historically throughout the running centuries. Actually history shows this very plainly that the people who have been the greatest benefactors to life in this world have been those who have first of all made sure of their own personal salvation. Now that's a statement which I could very easily prove and substantiate. The greatest blessings we are all enjoying tonight have come ultimately through the medium of the Christian church and through Christian leaders. It is certain men who themselves had seen their own lost estate and who became Christian who then began to consider the lot and the condition of others. Think of your factory acts. Where did they come from? Well, they came from the conversion of Lord Shaftesbury himself. It was when he himself got right with God and his soul was saved that he developed the interest in the others. What about slavery? Have you read the story of Samuel Wilberforce and the whole question of slavery? Why did that man become concerned about the liberation of slaves? And the answer quite simply is this, that it was after he himself had experienced his personal salvation. He was a typical society man before that, a very clever, a very brilliant and a very wealthy man. And he was enjoying the so-called life of society. He wasn't interested in slaves, not at all concerned about them. But when he first of all became concerned about his own soul and saw his own lost condition and then got right with God in Christ, he became aware of the problem of others. 
And so it has been with practically every beneficent institution that uh, the world of men is enjoying this evening. Education, hospitals, all these things have always come in the wake of mighty religious movements and revivals which have led people to a concern about their own personal soul salvation. Now, that's a general answer. So this glib talk, you see, about it's being selfish, that a man should be concerned about his own soul, is so altogether wrong. The only people who do become really concerned about others are those who've got this new life. Because until you have it, well, you're selfish. The natural man is always selfish. That's why the world is so selfish tonight, because it's not Christian. Everybody's looking after himself and his own interests. There's much less kindness in the world as it becomes less and less religious. Everybody's out for himself and only interested in himself. Let the others fend for themselves. The more Christian your society, the greater its concern for one another. Now, that's a pure statement of history. However, let's leave that at that and let me come to the more specifically Christian arguments. Here is the first. Why should I be first and foremost concerned that my own soul is right and is saved in the world as it is this evening? Well, here is my first answer. It is always the thing that is put first in the scripture itself. It is the thing that you always find first in the New Testament. Now, it's so easy to talk in generalities, isn't it? But go and read your New Testament. And if you do so, I suggest you'll come to this conclusion, that the New Testament teaching is always personal. It's always addressed directly to the individual. You see, the word in the Bible is always this word, whosoever. We've already had it in our reading tonight. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. The individual. Any individual. Any person. That's always the biblical teaching. It is invariably concerned, not with general positions, but with the case and the condition of individual people. In other words, you are constantly finding the phrase that is here and everywhere else, every one of you. Not all, but every one of you. Now, this is a point that I could easily develop. I must refrain from doing so this evening and resist the temptation to do so. One of the greatest troubles in the modern world is this mass and mob mentality. Crowds, large numbers, the individual's being forgotten. He's just a cog in a wheel, just a cipher, just a patient number of a, of a bed in a ward. Individuality is rapidly disappearing and everything's taken in the mass and in great crowds and in the main. But you know, the Bible does the exact opposite. As I'm going to show you, the Bible is always interested in us one by one. Now take it, start with the preaching of John the Baptist, the first preacher in the New Testament. He starts off, what's his, what's his message? Repent, he says, every one of you. Who hath warned you, he says, looking at certain individuals, to flee from the wrath to come. John the Baptist wasn't preaching a general message about world reform or world improvement. He was facing men and women standing there listening to him and said, Now what about your life? What are you doing about it? He took the different groups and he addressed them one by one. And he was concerned about them as individuals. Repent! And that's an individual action. Now there's your first preacher. He brings it down at once to the personal individual. Take our Lord's preaching. He's the second preacher. 
He does exactly the same thing. Repent every one of you and believe the gospel. All our Lord's teachings, read these gospels for yourselves. He was always talking to individuals. Talks to a woman ill for years, talking to, talks to another woman bent, talks to a poor boy possessed of devils, always addressing individuals. And when he's addressing a crowd of people, his message is always and invariably to the individual. He was always talking to people about their individual souls and about their individual relationship to God. I defy you to find anything beyond that in his teaching. He was always concerned with the individual and the apostles. When you come here to the book of the Acts, you find, of course, doing exactly the same thing. Here is the first sermon ever rarely preached under the auspices of the Christian church. The apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. What did he preach about? Did he preach about world affairs, world conditions? His country was conquered at that moment, you remember, by the great Roman Empire. Did he mention it? Is there any indication given here at all that he was even interested in it? What was he concerned about? General positions, large issues, great world affairs, not at all. He looked at these people and he said, now look here, you, you, you yourselves, you were the crowd who were a few weeks ago were crying about this Jesus of whom I'm speaking. You were the people who were shouting, away with him, crucify him. We are not interested, we have nothing to do with it. You were doing it. You and your rulers, he said. You are the people who have done this. And you know, they knew he was speaking to them personally. So they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Not what shall we do to reform the world. Not what shall we do to rid our own country of the Roman domination. What shall we do about this guilt in which we find ourselves, the way we treated that Jesus of whom you're speaking? It was intensely and directly individual. And of course, Peter replies to them and makes it perfectly clear in his preaching that that is what he is concerned about. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. He doesn't say rise up and reform the generation. He says, no, no. He says, things being as they are, save yourselves out of it from it. It's personal and entirely personal. And as you go right through your New Testament, you will find invariably always precisely the same thing. Well, if I've got no other reason, that's enough for me. My business is to expand this book, not to say what I think. And here I find a book that is all along talking to me individually and personally. And addressing me and holding me in a certain position. And bringing me to this point in which I see myself in trouble and in difficulties and I cry out saying, what shall I do? That's the first great and grand reason. It is a travesty of the New Testament teaching to minimize this, this emphasis upon the individual and the personal and to put it entirely on the general. But come, let us find some other reasons. The second is this. Why should I be concerned about myself and about my salvation? The answer is the supreme value of the soul and its relationship to God. Now, of course, I know that this argument that this interest in personal salvation is selfish and narrow and so on, I know it's a very specious argument. doesn't stand examination for a second. Because, you see, in every other respect, practically, in life we all are concerned about ourselves. 
Do you get annoyed with a man who's concerned about his own health? Do you know somebody tonight who's got an illness? And there he is, he's concerned about it. He wants to get well, of course. Now, why don't you go to him and say, Look here, my friend, with these bombs being made, you know, and the condition of the world as it is tonight, this is no time for you to be thinking about your own personal health. Forget it, man. Go and talk about the world and put the world right. Deal with the big situation. Uh, why? You're, look at your utter selfishness. You, concerned about your health, just one individual, and you're thinking about your own health and how you can be put in order. How utterly selfish. Do we do that? Of course we don't. We don't do it about our health. We don't do it about our wealth. We don't do it about our happiness. I know there are many people in this congregation now who say, oh, this evangelical preaching, it's personal, so selfish, salvation of your own soul. Yes, but my dear young men, don't you think you're being a little bit selfish in thinking about getting married yourself and uh, paying attention to one particular girl? You know, that's a very selfish thing to do with the world as it is tonight, isn't it? Why should you be thinking of you are getting married and having a home and a family and looking forward to life? In a time like this, with the whole world ready to explode at a moment, you are thinking about getting married yourself. You don't argue like that, do you? No, no, of course we don't. We don't argue like that about health, health of the body. We don't argue like that about the health of the psyche, the soul, whatever you may like to call it. We don't argue like that about our own individual prosperity and happiness. No, no, we say a man's got to live his own life after all. And I want to be right in these respects. And of course, you're absolutely right. Well, then, why don't you follow your own logic? Why do you suddenly change when it comes to the question of the soul? Why should it be such a terrible thing for a man to be concerned about his own soul and his soul's salvation? The argument, I say, won't stand examination for a second. My dear friend, the truth is the other way around. If there is one thing that we should be concerned about above everything else, it is the soul. Why? Well, because the soul is the greatest thing that is in us. The soul is greater than the body. You remember our Lord works that out in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you people, you know, you're very interested in what you shall put on. You're very interested in what you shall eat and what you shall drink. But you're not concerned about these other matters. The soul, the life, the man, the entity is bigger and is greater than the body. Why? Well, for these good reasons. It is, I say, the greatest thing in men. It is the soul that differentiates men from all the animals. It is the soul in men that is that part of that image that God has put upon him. Man has been made in the image of God, and that is the image, in a sense, the thing we call the soul, this immaterial part of man, this thing that God put into him when he breathed into him in the breath of life, and when he said, let us make him in our own image and likeness. This is the soul. It's the most important thing about us. Because here, you see, is the thing whereby we are related to God himself. Now, I'm not depreciating the value of the body. Of course not. Christianity doesn't do that. The body is important. We should pay attention to the body. We should try to have a healthy body. We should go out of our way to be careful in this respect. We should avoid all excesses. We should try to keep the rules. The body is a gift of God. Let's honor it. Let's keep it as pure and as healthy as we can. 
Yes, but I say, go up the scale, body, soul, spirit. And there's no question as to which is the most important. It is this immaterial part of man that lifts him up above the whole of creation, that makes him the Lord of creation, the mind, the understanding, the sensibility, and all this that is meant for God and has been put into us by God. That is the soul. Now, there's nothing to compare with that. And therefore, the Bible teaches us everywhere that as man is concerned about his body and its well-being and his social well-being and so on, he should above everything be concerned about the well-being of his soul. Why? Well, here is an inadequate reason, surely, and we need seek nothing further. Here is the only thing in us that goes on. The body is going to die and disintegrate. Dust to dust. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes. Oh, it's going to happen to every one of us. It's bound to happen. The body is only temporary. The Bible says this is a sort of tent. The Apostle Peter, an old man, this same man who was preaching here at the end of his life, he turned to the people, he said, you know, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to go on reminding you of these things. That's what the body is. It's a sort of tent in which we live while we're in this world. We know perfectly well it's going to go. It's going to disintegrate. It's going to fall apart. But you know, when the tent is gone, I go on, my soul goes on. It's the imperishable thing. It's in every respect the greatest thing of all about men. Well, very well. If the soul is the greatest thing, we should show the greatest concern about it. And what we should, should we be concerned about? Well, we should be concerned about this. The health of the soul. The well-being of the soul. My soul in its relationship to God. Oh, yes. Ask your question. Is my body functioning properly? Is there disease or defect? Deal with it. Well, apply the same to the soul. What of my soul? Do I know God? Do I have converse with God? Is my soul functioning? Am I living as a man or only as an animal? What about this higher part of me? Is it awake? Is it alert? Is it alive? Is it doing its work and its business? What about it when I come to shake off this mortal coil? Or fold up the tent, call it what you like, make my quietus, make my exodus? We've all got to do it. What then? What about this soul? Well, I needn't keep you. Our Lord himself has put this in a final word. Once and forever, listen to him. Finally, he says, what shall it profit a man, though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You may gain the whole world of wealth. You may gain the whole world of knowledge and of influence and of position. You may have it all. Finally, he says, what shall it profit a man if he's got all that? Why? Well, you see, for this reason, that the day is bound to come when he's got to leave all that behind and his soul goes on. So what shall it profit him if he's gained all that? And lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul at the bar of judgment when God will ask him the question... There's nothing. Oh, my dear friend, follow your own logic as you're concerned about the health and well-being of body, social connections, and so on. Lift it up, I say, the soul, the supreme thing. Start with that. Start with the greatest thing. Come down the ladder instead of doing the reverse. Very well, there's my second reason. But let me hurry to a third reason. 
God will hold us individually responsible for ourselves. There is no question about this. This is biblical teaching from beginning to end. So whether you're interested in your soul or not, there's a day coming when you'll have to be. Because God, having given you the gift, he's going to call you to account. Now our Lord put that once in a parable of the talents, you remember. He pictured a king giving talents to certain people, and then he went far away and didn't come back for a long time, but he did come back, and he said, what have you made of the talent that I gave you? There was a man who said, I did nothing with it, I buried it and put it out of sight. Done nothing with it. And he's the man who's turned out, you remember, and condemned. Well, now that is the biblical teaching everywhere. I come back to it once more this evening and in this world as it is tonight. Oh, that we all may be alive to this. We must all appear, every one of us, before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. And give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. We'll all have to pass through that straight gate. You know, that turnstile. You don't go in crowds to face God. You go through a turnstile. Because we came through a turnstile into this world, didn't we? We were not born in crowds. Do you know man isn't mass-produced? Try to remember that in a world that is thinking of everything in terms of mass production. No man is mass-produced. One by one. You came into the world, into life, through a turnstile. And you'll go out of it through a turnstile, the turnstile of death. We don't die in crowds. We don't die in great companies. No, no. You can watch football in a great crowd, but you won't die in a crowd. You'll die alone. Even though it be the last explosion, we'll die individually, every one of us. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Or listen to another word. Every man, we are told, shall bear his own burden. Every man shall bear his own burden. Listen to this, the Apostle Paul putting it to the Romans. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then, he says, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, this is the thing, of course, that is being forgotten today. I don't find a single teaching in the Bible that tells us that any one of us is to be held responsible for the state of the world. Not one. But I shall be held responsible for what I've done with my own soul. I'm not responsible for the government of this country. I have my delegated responsibility in a sense as a citizen. We all have it. But I'm not ultimately responsible. But here I am responsible for myself, my soul, my life, what I've done and what I haven't done. I shall be asked to give an account of myself and what I myself have done in the body which God has given me. That is the position of every one of us. So I say that there is another reason for this concern. Which makes a man cry out and say, men and brethren, what shall we do? I've got this precious gift, and I shall be asked what I've done with it, what I've made of it. And the question is, what have I done? I must start with this, but let me come to a still more cogent reason. Why should I start with this question of my soul and my own personal salvation? Well, here's an answer. This is the only thing in this world that really can be put right. 
Now then, do you accept that? Do you agree about that? Why should I start with my soul rather than with the whole world situation? Here's my answer. My soul can be put right. And it is the only thing that can be put right. No, I mustn't repeat what I think I argued uh, adequately and conclusively last Sunday night. I just repeat the argument in this form. The world cannot be put right. I'm going further. The world never will be put right. But you say you're a Christian and you speak like that. It is because I am a Christian I do speak like that. It is the non-Christians who believe the world can be put right, and it cannot be put right. They've been trying for centuries. They're no nearer. They seem to be further. You'll never put the world right. Our Lord says so. The world is under condemnation. It is under the wrath of God. Christ is going to come back to judge it and to condemn it and to cast it to perdition. The world will never be put right. It cannot be put right. But the individual soul can be put right. Now, this is the gospel. This is exactly the peculiar and the special message of this Christian gospel. Peter puts it here in a nutshell. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Save yourselves out of the world and its doom and its coming disaster. Now, that is the great message. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who hath delivered us out of this present evil world. That's it. He writes to the Thessalonians and he says the same thing. He says that we believe and wait for the appearing of his Son Jesus, who hath delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, this is the great message of this book, that the world is under this doom and condemnation. The world is evil. It belongs to the devil. There is not a scintilla of evidence to support the contention that, the, that Christianity's message is world reform, world improvement, to save the world from calamity. It cannot be done. The world is already doomed. But, my dear friend, you and I can be saved out of that doom. That's the message of Christianity. Save yourselves out of, from this untoward generation. Flee from the wrath to come. Here is a glorious possibility. And that is why I know of nothing which is so tragic tonight as this foolish argument of men and women who say, but you're utterly selfish in being concerned about your own personal soul salvation with the world as it is tonight. Forget yourself, men, they say. Don't be interested in your own soul and its salvation. Try and save the world from the calamity that's coming. Why do I say it is of all the foolish positions the most foolish? Well, here's my answer. You can go on doing that other thing as long as you like. You'll never succeed. But if you've given the whole of your time to doing that, and you've ignored entirely the question of your own personal soul salvation, do you know what's going to happen to you? I'll tell you, it's one of two things. One is this. You may die tonight, or you may die tomorrow night, or you may die at any moment. And still the world hasn't been put right. But then what of you? 
You've been laboring and given all your energy to try to save the world from the calamity and to try to reform it and put it in order and to save it thinking that that's Christianity. But suddenly you'll be confronted with God who will ask you, what have you done about the soul that I gave you? But you say, I did a lot of good. I tried to reform the world. The answer will be, that isn't the question I'm asking you. What about your relationship to me? What about my commandments? What did you do with the soul? How did you exercise it? How did you enjoy a relationship with me? I sent my only son into the world to die for the sins of men. How did that come into your calculation? Where did it come in? And you say, but I thought that was self was selfish. It wasn't my I was here to save the world. And the answer will be you are responsible for your soul and for nothing else. Is there anything so mad? If it isn't that, it'll be this. You may be alive in this world when the end does come, however it may come. Whether the explosion of the bomb or some other method, I don't know. But let's assume you're here, you're still here. And the end suddenly comes. And you realize at last what a fool you've been. You spent the whole of your time in trying to stop that end coming. But it's come. And then you'll realize that you're face to face with the personal question and your own personal responsibility for your own soul. And you've never given it a thought. You thought that was selfish, that was small. Oh, how the devil blinds and deludes men and women. Why not face practical politics? Why not be a realist? And there are the facts and there's nothing to add to them. The world is doomed. It is under condemnation. It's surely proving it before our eyes today. We are facing doom. According to the very scientists, we are hurtling ourselves in that direction. And even while this is happening, you know, it is possible for you as an individual to be saved out of it. It is possible for your individual soul to be delivered. You can be dissociated from the doom of that world. You can be reconciled to God. Your soul can be renewed. You can be delivered from sin in its power and in its pollution as well as in its guilt. Your soul can be put right and as it ought to be. This is a, an actual possibility this evening. Is there anything more mad than for men to attempt impossibilities and to refuse the only possibility? This is the thing that is offered in the New Testament. The urgency is obvious. It's not surprising these men cried out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They say, we see it. We see the guilt. We see the folly. What shall we do? Where shall we turn? Don't we see something of the same urgency at this present time? Why not listen to the signs of the times? Why not see that the time is short at best? Life is short. The whole time of the whole world may be very short indeed, I don't know. It may or it may not be, but whether it is or not, I know that my time is short. The rest of my time, it's a very little rest. And here is this possibility. What is it? Oh, this is the first thing that every sensible, logical, reasoning man or woman should consider this evening. My dear friend, if you haven't faced this, I have nothing to say except that you're a fool. 
The facts are inevitable. You can't evade them. You can't avoid them. Very well then, your first question should be this. What can I do about this soul of mine? I see that I can't change the world and save it. What about my own soul? Men and brethren, what shall we do? There's only one answer. It is the answer that was given to those people who asked the question on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. You notice every one of you. Repent and be baptized every one of you. Repentance is individual. Baptism is individual. And be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's all. This astounding, amazing, apparently incredible thing, but it's nevertheless the heart and the message of the gospel. Here's the first sermon, here's the first preacher in the Christian church. That's what he says, that's what he's been talking about. He's been preaching about Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, this man who walked back and forth in that country, who'd been a few weeks before in Jerusalem. They'd cried away with him, crucify him. We don't want him. Caesar is our king. And he'd been crucified and had died and had been buried, but he'd risen again. Oh, says Peter, you didn't realize it. But you were killing and crucifying your own Savior. You were putting to death your own Deliverer. You were turning your backs upon and execrating and blaspheming the Son of God who would come into this world in order to what? Well, to save you. The thing you're asking for now. What shall we do? Well, there's only one thing to do. Realize the awful calamity of your mistake. Repent. Think again. Change your minds. Confess that you were wrong. That's what repentance means. It means thinking again. It means changing your mind. Oh, my dear friend, may I plead with you urgently this evening to think again. Think about your soul. Think about yourself. Follow your own logic. Health, body, affairs, happiness, soul, spirit, God, eternity. Think about it. Have you ever thought about it? You've dismissed it as being selfish, haven't you? Fancy thinking about my own soul salvation with the world as it is. Never say that again. Follow your own logic. Be reasonable. Say, I must start with this. I'll think again. And then you'll soon begin to see how foolish you've been. In all your cleverness, you'll see how illogical you've been, how inconsistent you've been. You'll see that you've ignored the greatest thing of all, that you've ignored God and your relationship to him. You'll see that you've ignored the purity of your soul, the life of God, the life of purity and holiness that is possible even in this world. You'll see that you've done nothing with Christ, Son of God, who came and died for you. He's never entered into your calculations. Like the people in Jerusalem, you'll have to admit and confess that you've turned your back upon him and ignored him. And given yourself to other people and other things. Repent, says Peter. And it means that you not only think again and change your mind. It means that you go to God and to Christ and tell them that. 
You go to God and say, God, I see what a fool I've been. I've neglected the greatest gift that you've given me. I've exalted other gifts and put them first and I've ignored thine. I've been trying to win the whole world and have forgotten and lost my own soul. God, can you still look at me? Have mercy upon me. Take me back. What can I do? That's repentance. You go to God and you acknowledge your folly and your sin and your shame. And you say the same to the Lord Jesus Christ. You admit it all. You confess it all. You don't try to defend yourself. And you cast yourself upon God's mercy. And as you do so, he will tell you the very thing that Peter told these people at Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. He rose from the dead. This isn't David, it's greater. David said, my Lord, yes, he's son of God. He's conquered death and the grave. He is the deliverer and he can deliver you. Believe on him. Be baptized into his name, which means that you leave the world. You give yourself and your life to him and you live only for him henceforward. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you've got to do. And you see, then if you do that, this is the marvelous thing that happens. That you are delivered immediately from this untoward generation. You are delivered from the doom to which the world is hastening. And then, if the end should come by death on your own or in the final cataclysm, it won't affect you. You will have already passed through judgment into life. You will be absolutely safe. Christ came to save our individual souls. He saves all who believe in him. All who repent and believe in him are saved. That's all, says Peter. Repent, be baptized in his name, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it's as true tonight as it was nearly 2,000 years ago. Oh, be wise. Realize the whole state of the world as it is at this hour. The first thing to make sure of is that whatever happens, you are ready, you are right. Your soul is everlastingly saved. And once you've put that right, then you can, if you like, pay attention to the world. Try and make it as good a world as you can. Go into politics if you like. Go into your local council. Go and do anything you like. I don't care what it is. But if you do all that without saving your soul, you'll find yourself at the end with the world lost and you lost with it. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And then, and only then, do your best and your utmost for the world while you're still in it. And while it still lasts, but above everything, make certain, make sure that your soul is saved safe. And you do so by repenting and believing that Christ, the Son of God, has died for your sins to reconcile you to God and that he will save your soul, give you a new life and a new hope, 
and will lead you to the end and present you faultless in the presence of God in glory with exceeding joy, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast. When the world is shaken and finally destroyed, you will be safe in the arms of Jesus. Be wise. Think. Start with the soul, your personal soul, and make certain that you are in Christ and eternally safe. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.